Thank you everyone for joining us on this podcast. Uh, my name is Sin Beng. I'm the head of EM Asia Economics Research and joining me today is Arindam Sandilia, who heads up the EM Asia strategy piece um, for us. Um, so what we'd like to do today is just to summarize some of the thoughts we've had uh, following the release of our media um, reports that just came out uh, earlier this week um, and effectively some of the summary points that we'd like to convey. I mean, let me just start with a just macro narrative and I'll just hand over to, to, to Arindam on the back of that. I mean, the, the the general thinking here is that this is what we're seeing in the second half, we think, is just going to be a continuation in different forms of what we said we thought we would see um, in the year ahead uh, that we published in November. And the, the thematics are really around the endemic equilibrium, creating this uh, di divergence in the last couple of years towards a convergence between the goods and the non-goods producing sectors. And this in itself, in our view, would create a situation where the goods sector would start slowing down as it already seems to be doing. Um, and despite China effectively moving um, um, away from lockdowns, um, which should be a positive impulse for supply chains, but that doesn't uh, detract from the idea that global uh, spending um, on the consumer side and possibly on the capital spending side could slow over the course of the next six months. So that in itself uh, um, biases our thinking um, around the, uh, the good cycle, which more in our view is more biased to the downside than the upside at this point in time. And and again, this will have repercussions for the asset markets, which Arindam will also uh, dive into in, in, in a minute. Um, there's also a secondary component to this, which is the reopening piece, the endemic equilibrium piece, if you will. And this is really about the recovery of the non-goods producing sector, specifically services and private consumption. And what this means in particular for us is that we expect to see a fairly large increase in, in labor um, um, a demand, uh, and this will effectively also be uh, followed by a commensurate rise in, in labor incomes. And I think what we're, we're, we've already found to see that in terms of very high vacancy rates across countries that we've um, that, that we have data for. At the same time, we also have fairly large increases in employment gains. And at the same time, we also have a decent pickup in, in labor income. So all of these factors, we think, uh, will also um, um, uh, combine with um, what is already fairly intense supply side pressures on the commodity side, uh, physical uh, shortages, or at least constraints on the refining side um, and, and, and downstream side to create uh, what is effectively a fairly powerful uh, inflation impulse over the course of the next six months. I mean, the, the, there's a tension here, as you can imagine, between what is effectively rising input prices, rising labor costs um, against effectively um, still some uh, margin. So the question I think in our minds is as we move across the next six months, do we get margin compression that eats into the overall um, um, recovery story that we have? So right now, what we're thinking is that this is going to be uh, more of a late second half story rather than early part of the second half, which means we have we have some legs to run. So where does this take us for inflation? It simply means that when we have the conjuncture of these forces coming together, um, fairly intense broad-based supply side on, on the up stream together with um, some tightness in, in, in the downstream and the labor side together with um, uh, still decent uh, purchasing power given that savings rates are still quite elevated we're going to get this fairly powerful inflation uh, um, uh, pasture that continues over the course of the next six months in our view and what this means from a reaction function um, is that this we think and, and it will also lead to a potential acceleration uh, central bank reactions we've already seen that happen over the course of the last two to three months and this could actually continue and be a theme over 
over the course of the next six months. Um, we are mindful also that ex as external conditions tighten, there's a general also tightening liquidity conditions as well. And we expect that to see to see that in some of our countries where for the last two, two years, we've had a very large increase in, in net savings reflecting the current account balances. And as that reverses over the course of the second um, half, this will mean that the excess uh, liquidity or excess savings if you have will diminish and therefore the support for domestic financing or domestic bond issuance also be under pressure as well. And the final point we'd like to make is that given that we have the tight external conditions combined with the, with the higher dollar, the stronger dollar, and we are concerned about um, dollarization, some of our economies, um, be it through uh, non-conversion of export proceeds to local currency or into um, or, or effectively a, a conversion of existing savings into foreign currency dollars in particular. So this in itself will also have a secondary impact on li liquidity all told. So what we effectively have is a situation that's not going to be particularly conducive uh, for either um, you know, for the markets uh, that Arindam covers. But I mean, we again, we take these forecasts very much um, in, in, in a very likely because it is very data dependent. And we are very mindful that we could be on a cusp of recession. I mean, we still think that's a ways away, but we're always mindful of that. Um, of, of that, um, And that could change the narrative quite quickly. So with that, I mean, let me just pass this uh, conversation over to Arindam. We'll talk about the implications for uh, the rates and FX piece. Over to you, Arindam. Thank you. Thanks, Enveng. Um, see, uh, based on everything that Enveng described, it doesn't look like the second half of the year is shaping up to be a very constructive one for Asian rates and FX. The fly in the ointment, of course, is that uh, Asia local markets are entering H2 with uh, precisely that view, a consensus downbeat outlook on, on rates and FX. So there is uh, not much by way of shock value or new information to the view. Uh, the question is, uh, given the large price adjustment that we have seen in markets over the first half of the year, has all the bad news been already priced in and is it time to go the other way? Um, you know, our analysis shows that uh, for the most part, the price adjustment has been commensurate or in some cases even less than commensurate with the worsening of the underlying macro. So for example, when we benchmark uh, regional bonds and FX at an index that let's say GBI in Asia, uh, to moves in uh, growth expectations across the region and the uh, tremendous move up in global yields, we find that uh, in some cases, uh, rates and FX are actually stronger than they should be. Um, when we look at structural risk premium in bonds and currencies, so for example, comparing the real yield compensation of bonds for every unit twin deficit risk uh, we are taking, uh, that ratio is not at uh, the sort of highs that mark capitulation in bond markets. Similarly for currencies, the real yield offered by uh, currency forwards um, to compensate for unit current account risk is once again not at or even close to historic highs. That tells us that the price adjustment uh, under, that's underway in markets has room to run. When we look at positioning metrics, uh, yes, they have swung quite sharply from uh, market rate or even slightly overweight, especially in China-related markets at the turn of the year to significantly underweight. But once again, on a time series basis, uh, those positions are fairly short, but not at historic extremes. So put all of that together, it looks like if the underlying macro continues to worsen in the direction that Sinbank just described, there is room for uh, risk markets to run, uh, price in more of the bad news, and there remains ample room to price in additional risk premium that has typically marked the, the uh, later stages or the end of capitulation in, in markets. So when we think about the delta in the macro for the second half, we feel like uh, the, the most salient uh, you know, set of factors for 
markets this year, this adverse mix of uh, growth expectations being downgraded and inflation expectations being upgraded, especially for Asia, is not just going to sustain, but even intensify, at least through the third quarter of the year. Um, the growth piece, as Sinmeng described, of course, is going to be a function of the weakening global demand pulse. We've already started to see that in the almost synchronous downturn in PMI new export orders across the region. The inflation piece, once again, as Sinmeng described, uh, you know, there's unlikely to be any respite on that front. Reopening in particular is a dynamic that is uh, sort of unique to us in EM Asia, and at a minimum that should keep our services CPIs firm over the course of the second half. Central banks cannot but react to this uh, inflation dynamic. Uh, we have seen that inflation has become a political issue in a number of places, both in DM and in EM. So almost irrespective of how growth is evolving, central banks have to be seen to be reacting to uh, you know, uncomfortably hot inflation. Plus, there is also this issue of uh, a potential recession in uh, DM or, or even a global recession, as Sembeng alluded to. Uh, with that risk lurking in the background, potentially a 2023 event, I think central banks will be incentivized to hike quickly to front load hikes and create policy room to cut later if need be. Uh, in addition, the dollarization dynamic that was touched upon earlier, that um, creates problems for uh, the bond market because uh, once locals start moving savings out of, out of local currencies into foreign currencies, the corpus of uh, local savings uh, that are there to absorb bond supply, which by the way is going to be relatively heavy this year, fiscal consolidations, planned fiscal consolidations have all been, if not jettisoned, at least significantly moderated in, in the face of this inflation shock. Um, that will have a hard time getting absorbed. And, and as a result, bond demand supply dynamics don't look friendly for us in this part of the world. Um, and finally, there's the question of, well, given all of these uh, negative issues, uh, isn't it still the fact that the front end of swap curves are very steep? And isn't therefore this aggressive central bank reaction function already priced in? I think if you look at uh, our house forecast for central bank policy calls versus what's priced in 12 months forward, yes, there is significant risk premium. You know, these are north of 100 basis points across uh, many cases, yet uh, a reading of history shows that 100 basis points is not only not unusual, it could even be on the lower end of the range. Uh, because when you have central bank tightening cycles that last for more than six months, and this is the lesson of history across EM over the last 20 years, then um, EM swap curves need to be a build in at least 100 basis points of risk premium over the eventually exposed delivered terminal rate. Um, uh, uh, in addition, uh, the rate hiking cycle, unless it's complete by at least three quarters of the eventual delivery, we do not see a peak in market rates. And given that central banks in Asia have just started gotten going, I know it seems like there's a fair distance to travel between now and whenever the peak in Asian rates could be. We are, of course, mindful of the risk of a recession outside of Asia that could short circuit the rates trend in DM. And for us sitting in Asia, we do derive a lot of our directional rates from uh, the developed world. So, so that's a risk that's lurking in the background. But nonetheless, as a base case, we feel like playing for higher rates is the right baseline stance for the second half of the year in terms of trades. Our favorite markets to pay are India, Thailand, and Taiwan. In uh, all of those cases, particularly India and, and Thailand, we feel like inflation processes are, if not unanchored, certainly running well above central banks' uh, comfort levels. And there is a fair amount of catch-up for policy rates to 
to, to do just to, uh, to, to go to where inflation expectations are running. Uh, we do have a suite of trades that are paid US versus receive Asia in flavor. And these are really concentrated in places where there is either a policy angle to this. So for example, Hong Kong, or in places like Korea, where the central bank cycle started well before the Fed, and where we have a reasonable degree of conviction that the peak in uh, Korean rates will happen earlier and lower than wherever the, the, the Fed policy rate peaks. Uh, in FX, uh, once again, there is very little to like about the global environment uh, as far as we in Asia are concerned. Um, the global demand pulse is weakening. We're talking about recession. Uh, we are a large energy importer. We started the year with $80 oil, and we are now sitting at 120 And these are still very early stages of the driving season in the US, the, the Asian aviation reopening. And, uh, and we could potentially be in for you know, a, a version of the Russia energy shock as this Russia-Ukraine war uh, drags on and we start approaching the winter season once again in, in the West. Uh, so, um, you know, flat to higher oil prices preserve the risk of further current account weakness uh, for our currencies. As Sinmeng described, dollarization is a key difference for the H2 dynamic for Asian FX versus H1. You've seen this uh, in, in multiple places, exporter non-conversion of foreign currency receipts in terms of currency and deposits leakages uh, in places like Indonesia and Thailand. So this is a risk to, to pay attention to. Uh, real carry in Asian FX is not high. Uh, in nominal carry terms, we suffer in comparison to our peers in Latin America, for example, Brazil. Um, you know, one point of potential difference between H1 and H2 for us in FX could be that some of the quite surprising and outsized weakness in North Asian FX that we saw in the first half of the year relative to the South could start to moderate. Uh, so we have uh, uh, done some analysis in terms of the risk of outflows from our local equity markets, which is a big driver of our currencies. And uh, in, in Q1, we found that given the uh, large gearing of North Asian equity markets to the global tech cycle, and given the pain that tech was taking from the multi-sigma rise in, in US rates, the most exposed markets to large equity outflows by foreigners were uh, Taiwan, Korea, and India. Uh, when we run that same analysis now, uh, the pecking order has changed somewhat. Uh, you know, there's been significant valuation and positioning correction in the North Asian equity markets. So right now, the most uh, vulnerable markets are uh, India, Philippines, and Thailand. And uh, I think that sets us up for a degree of rotation away from North Asian weakness towards South Asian weakness. So in terms of our trades in Asian FX, we are broadly long dollar Asia. The shorts in Asian FX are concentrated in the deficit South Asian block, so short Philippines peso, short Indian rupee. In North Asia, we still like shorting uh, the Korean won, which has a high beta to the global cycle. We started, uh, initiated a fresh short in a reduced CNY basket, thinking that uh, the CNY reopening is going to be fairly uh, stop-start. And this time around, unlike in the 09, 12, or 16 growth pivots in China, there is a global cost to the reopening, i.e. inflation can go up because of the commodity demand from China's infra push that can elicit a DM central bank tightening. And on the net, Chinese reopening could end up being uh, a net tightening factor for global financial conditions. Uh, and CNY does not benefit in, in that sort of a climate. Um, and and uh, broadly, we are avoiding any flavor of relative value uh, in an environment where tails are very fat and both legs of the long or the short are weak and go wrong. So keeping it relatively simple, underweight bonds, underweight FX in GBIM, in the model portfolio, the underweights and bonds are in Thailand and Malaysia. 
given the index constituent constraints, the underweights in uh, FX are expressed in the Philippine space. That's fantastic, Narendra. Thank you so much for that um, you know, um, very succinct summary. And, and I think um, if, if you do have further questions uh, to either Narendra or myself or even the broader um, um, research teams, um, please do reach out to your sales representative or to us directly. But um, thank you again for joining us. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures, 2022 JP Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved. This episode was recorded on June 16th, 2022.